This is the Beat Generation, a look at music throughout the years that changed our world, from the original beat poets of the 50s through to the musicians of the 60s until today. They've become known for their influence on music that has shaped the soundtrack of our lives, simply known as the Beat Generation. Welcome to the Beat Generation, produced in association with Bad Boys Productions, Townsville's Triple TFM and the Community Broadcast Association of Australia. The show got its name from the 50s writers that inspired so many musicians and each week we'll look into music and artists throughout the years that have changed the face of the musical landscape. The full song listing can be found at our Facebook page forward slash music that changed the world. And a podcast of this show and past episodes can be found on Apple and Spotify, along with some of our other shows, including The Bad Boys and Secret Men's Business. Check out our shows, and if you like what you hear, then please leave a review. So sit back, put your headphones on, crank up the dial, and journey with us this week into The Mystic. I'm Shane Bryan, and this is The Beat Generation. The summer of love was coming to an abrupt end. The dropout culture was beginning to unravel and those experimenting with the drug culture were seeking other sources of inspiration. The beat generation had spawned a counterculture that was diametrically opposed to the anger that was spilling out from the government of the time. So it's little wonder that people were turning from the hatred and looking inward. Many artists began turning to the East, finding comfort in the teachings of the mystics. On this week's Beat Generation, we look at the influence the East had over the West and how the Beat Generation welcomed the Indian teachers with open arms. America was now the mecca for the Beat Generation and the gurus from India were leaving their ashrams to head over to the new country to spread their message of love and salvation through devotion rather than drugs. Allen Ginsberg, one of the original Beat Generation, became a huge advocate for the Hare Krishna movement and the guru who started the movement I had been singing Hare Krishna since 63, and it seemed to me that almost as if reinforcements had arrived from India. My idea at the time was that the more swamis the better, and the more spiritual teachers the better. By 1969, the swami who had taken over New York City by storm also had a profound effect on the musical landscape, and eventually it reached the ears of George Harrison, who famously recorded the Hare Krishna mantra reaching the number 12 position on the UK singles charts. One man who was present at the recording was Joshua Green, author of a new book, Swami in a Strange Land. Well, that same group that opened a a center in Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco, back in 1967, they thought, what can we do that would be big for the Swami? Well, in 1967-68, there was nothing bigger than the Beatles. So they made it their business to go to London they had no money, but they showed up and um, decided that if they were ever going to meet the Beatles, they had to bring some attention to the chanting. So they dressed in the traditional robes and the men shaped their heads and they would go out every day on Oxford Street chanting the Krishna mantra. And it you can imagine it caused quite a scene and ended up uh, as an article in the Times of London. And George Harrison saw the article and the photograph there. And it says, um, Krishna chant startles London. That was the headline of the, <laughs> of the article. And George, by 1968, had really taken to the yoga and 
meditative culture himself, and that through the chanting of mantras, and particularly the Krishna mantra has a unique place in the in the Vedic library, the yoga texts, one can revive that original consciousness. So he took it quite seriously. Now George was like that. Whatever he took up, he whether it was gardening or playing guitar or sports cars or or yoga, whatever he did, he really threw himself into it. He learned about it and became a, a very good student. The the kind of the, the, the height of everything happened in August of 68 when he brought the other Beatles with him to Maharishi's ashram in Rishikesh. And uh, it, it was a, a fabulous time for him. The others weren't quite so into it. Um, Ringo didn't like the food. He was the first to leave. and um, And then there was some question about the character of the people in charge so Paul and John left but for George he, he really found something that was to his liking uh, recognizing that he was alone in this endeavor the other Beatles were not going to follow him on this path he came back to London and later that year in 1968 he met the Krishna devotees uh, first at a uh, holiday party at Apple Studios and that was, I came on the scene just slightly after that. I arrived in London in 69 and joined the Krishna temple there. It was a lovely little building that George had uh, signed the lease for. When a Beatle, I mean, those people who weren't around back then, you know, <laughs> your younger listeners won't quite get this, but the older ones will. Whatever the Beatles were into, that was it. You know, that's what we want. We wanted to know, why is George Harrison chanting Hare Krishna? What is that? And so when I arrived in London, it was just at a time when the devotees were, the Krishna uh, practitioners were recording an album of Indian devotional music with George at Apple Studios and at uh, Abbey Road Studios. So they invited me along, all of 19 years old. I played organ in a college band so there I am in Apple Studios recording with George Harrison so I'm thinking to myself okay if I stay with these people I get God and the Beatles okay let me think let me think all right I'm in and, you know, I stayed I stayed in Ashram life for 13 years it was very heady days Swami Prabhupada first heard the recording in Los Angeles moved to tears he asked it to be played every morning this, of course, was followed by Harrison's own version of the Maha Mantra and a song that has become one of the greatest songs of all time. Here is the unmistakable My Sweet Lord by George Harrison on The Beat Generation. 1970.
Swami Prabhupada knew the importance of music in reaching the youth and famously aligned himself and the Hare Krishna movement with a number of up-and-coming bands by way of mantra rock dance events, the first being the famous mantra rock dance event in San Francisco in 1967. It was known as the Ultimate High. The popular festival featured the Grateful Dead, Moby Grape and even Janis Joplin. The Beat Generation's Allen Ginsberg and Dropout Culture's Timothy Leary were also present as the bands joined in the mantra singing. Let's, uh, we can set the scene by imagining uh, what the energies were around the year 1967. Um, by that time, there had been a rather widespread proliferation of LSD in various uh, degrees of quality. Um, there was a sense of um, hallucinogens as a path to enlightenment that had been um, kind of encouraged by books like Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception and others. And there was a sense that somewhere in that juncture of Eastern mysticism and this new energy that uh, the post-war baby boomer generation was feeling in the 60s, there was something there that could lead us to a better kind of life. So when Krishna devotees uh, first landed in San Francisco in 1967, their goal, their destination was Haight-Ashbury, which is kind of the epicenter of this whole energy of mysticism meets the hippie world. They had no money, and so their thinking was, well, why don't we have a, a concert? We'll, we'll do a benefit concert. And they knew some of the bands of the era, uh, Moby Grape and, and uh, the Jefferson Airplane and uh, Janis Joplin and uh, Big Brother. And, and They tapped all their friends. They said, hey, would you guys play a concert for us? We want to raise money to start a Krishna temple here. And everyone was agreeable. So they found the Avalon Ballroom available. That was kind of the place for emerging bands of the, the mid-60s. And when the, uh, the event took place, some commentators on the 60s have said it was the, the game changer. It, it was the moment when the contact with Mystic India really took shape. Prabhupada, Swami Bhaktivedanta arrived with some of his disciples, mounted the stage. Allen Ginsberg had arrived as master of ceremonies. Allen was one of the early followers back in the village in New York. And he talked, he gave an introduction to the crowd. The place was crowded with, with the most, and the headgear and costumes alone were to die for. I mean, it was just the most amazing collection of young people you could imagine. And Ginsburg talked about how here is this holy man who came not to speak to the wealthy Upper West Side crowd in New York, but he landed and set up his shop among the most needful, the down and outs the hippies, the disenfranchised of New York's Lower East Side, later known as the village. I think there was something about the humility in that that uh, captured Ginsburg's fantasy. And he had been to India and knew the Krishna mantra. The Krishna chanting, by the way, um, took hold in the music world. After the um, New York temple opened in 66, and then this mantra rock concert that you're talking about in 67, Musicians picked up the melody, they picked up the mantra, 
And it worked its way into the fabric of jazz, improv, and the whole um, music scene of the 60s. Uh, John Coltrane dedicated his last three albums to Mystic India. A Love Supreme uh, is, is his ode to his yoga practice, which he credits with having saved him from death by drugs. And that was Joshua Green. You can buy his book, Swami in a Strange Land, from Amazon.com if you want to read more about Prabhupada's influence over music of the time. One song by the Grateful Dead, who was present at the San Francisco event, is one that has always remained obscure, and that is Cosmic Charlie. Whether it's about a person or a reference to the end of their psychedelic phase, we'll never know. But one thing is certain. Like the guru Prabhupada, Cosmic Charlie remains an important role in the band's evolutionary timeline. Here is the Grateful Dead and Cosmic Charlie. This is the Beat Generation. 
Many years earlier, a plausible, exotic, young guru preaching love and peace came on the scene offering a natural high without the need for drugs, and he quickly became a cult hero. Maharashi Mahesh Yogi influenced many artists that were looking for an escape from the pressure of stardom and a way into understanding themselves. The Beatles' love-hate relationship is very famously documented. However, the Maharashi influenced many other bands, including the US competition to the Beatles, the Beach Boys. Mike Love was in Rikakesh at the same time as the Beatles and Mia Farrow to learn the art of transcendental meditation. The Beach Boys then went on to tour with the Swami on the back of possibly their worst-selling album ever, but also one that's become a cult favourite, Friends. One song stood out though, written by Dennis Wilson, Little Bird is full of spirituality and captures his love for the power of nature. This is the Beach Boys and Little Bird on the Beat Generation. 
I'm Shane Bryan. Welcome back to the Beat Generation. As we heard in episode two, the Eastern Mystics and Indian musicians had influenced so many bands, as did the unique Indian style of ragas. Attributed to the Beatles for introducing Ravi Shankar to the West, the raga style was seized by artists all clamouring over each other to use this magical sound in their next song. Last week we heard two songs influenced by the mystical Indian sound of the sitar, Norwegian Wood and Painted Black. But one other band was also mesmerised by the East, and that was Traffic. Steve Winwood, Jim Capaldi, Chris Wood and Dave Mason began as a psychedelic rock group with the first two singles, Paper Sun and Hole in My Shoe, both using the sitar. Now, they both also had the unique raga sound, only much shorter than the 20-minute ragas of the East. Now, while both tracks were top 10 charting tracks, it was Hole in My Shoe that reached number two in the UK and has since been re-recorded by popular culture icons, The Young Ones, and reached number two as well. Here is the original Hole in My Shoe by Traffic. 1969. Welcome back to The Beat Generation. I'm Shane Bryan. That was Hole in My Shoe by Traffic. And we will be back with more from The Beat Generation as we explore music 
that changed the world. And we take a look into the mystic. Hi, this is Shane. And Andrew from the Bad Boys. If you're after quality, hard-hitting journalism that matches four corners... News that'll keep the government and the people accountable for their actions... And current affairs that's more reliable than, well, a current affair... Then then that's that's not us. us. Bad Boys Unleashed, music, entertainment, celebrity interviews... And the only original Bad Boys news that makes 60 Minutes sound like the Muppets. Join me, him and bad girl Angie for the conversation that no one wants to have... But everybody wants to hear. Bad Boys Unleashed, subscribe for free on Apple and Spotify. Bad, bad this is the Beat Generation, a look at music throughout the years that changed our world, from the original beat poets of the 50s through to the musicians of the 60s until today. They've become known for their influence on music that has shaped the soundtrack of our lives, simply known as the Beat Generation. Welcome back to The Beat Generation, produced in association with Bad Boys Productions, Townsville's Triple TFM and the Community Broadcast Association of Australia. I'm Shane Bryan. Thanks for joining us as we continue our journey into the mystic. It was 1969 and Woodstock was a festival that was and still is the most influential festival that the music world has ever seen. It was a who's who of the music industry, but more importantly, It demonstrated to the world the profound effect that the East had on the music scene at the time, with the official opening of the event by Sri Swami Sachananda, addressing the crowd of over 500,000 people. How this came about was a result of the now prominent festival organiser Sridhar Silberfine, who was asked by the Woodstock producers what was missing from their lineup. His answer was simple, spirituality. Sridhar organised a Swami who arrived in style in a helicopter and delivered the opening message and, well, the rest, it's history. America leads the whole world in several ways. Very recently when I was in the East, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi met me and asked me, What's happening in America? And I said, America is becoming a whole. America is helping everybody in the material field, but the time has come for America to help the whole world with spirituality also. Forty years later, the concept of spirituality in festivals has come full circle with Sridhar now organising the longest-running spiritual music festival, Bhakti Fest, and the original organiser of Woodstock, Michael Lang, being part of the Love Light Festival. Well, with a whole range of different bands at Woodstock, one would be forgiven if Bob Dylan was expected to show up on stage. However, the original Beat Generation artist was nowhere to be seen. Many reasons were given, but possibly the best story and the most colourful was that he was annoyed with all the hippies gathering at his house, which was just near the town of Woodstock. Whatever the reason, it didn't stop his band, the band, from attending and playing this little number, This Wheels on Fire. This is The Beat Generation. 1968. 
that was This Wheel's on Fire. And ironically, we talked about the young ones earlier. Well, they also re-recorded This Wheel's on Fire as well for their the theme song of not their show, but another BBC comedy, Absolutely Fabulous. The interest in the mystics of the East culminated for George Harrison in the concert for Bangladesh, featuring his friends Ravi Shankar, of course, Billy Preston, Ringo Starr, and the one and only Eric Clapton. The song they famously played together in concert, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, was inspired by Harrison reading the I Ching. As Harrison put it, it seemed to be based on the Eastern concept that everything is relative to everything else, as opposed to the Western view that things were merely coincidental. Here is While My Guitar Gently Weeps from the concert for Bangladesh on the Beat Generation. 1971.
Thank you. Thank you. As we entered the 70s, Eastern mysticism became even more influential, especially on the 70s progressive rock bands that suddenly found a medium in prog rock that would allow them to tell a story easier than the standard four-minute song would allow. It became the era that standard pop traditions gave way to long instrumentals and compositions. It also allowed bands to explore themes that they wouldn't normally be able to, with more than a nod to its predecessors Sgt Pepper and Pet Sounds. And it also allowed bands like Yes and Pink Floyd to bring their unique style and underlying mystic qualities to the forefront. Next week on the show, we'll take a good look at progressive rock of the 70s, and then in Season 2, we'll feature a special episode on Yes frontman John Anderson, who created a concept album which became an album many consider a masterpiece called Elias of Sun Hillo. Well, another genre greatly affected by the mystical East was, believe it or not, jazz. Jazz legend John Coltrane was arguably the greatest jazz saxophonist of his generation and an incredible influence on the genre. In the 60s, prior to his death in 1967, Coltrane's study of Indian music led him to believe that certain sounds and scales could produce specific emotional meanings. After A Love Supreme, many of the titles of John Coltrane's songs and albums were linked to spiritual matters such as Ascension, Meditations, Om and Selflessness. In the years following John's death in 1967, his wife, singer Alice Coltrane, turned to the East for comfort and after a pilgrimage to India, underwent a series of revelations starting an ashram in California. Coltrane's love and admiration for the Indian Raga style was evident in many of his albums, including his classic A Love Supreme. The closing track, Psalm, is essentially a jazz version of an Indian raga known as an alap. With the fourth section of the Love Supreme album, here is John Coltrane and Psalm. 1965.
Well, the Beat Generation is nearly over for another week, but this episode of Mystic Influence wouldn't be complete without the title track and the man who created it. Now, while not actually at Woodstock, Van Morrison felt the effects from the event and his album Moondance featured artists recruited from Woodstock. Van Morrison was proof that not all gurus came in the format of an Eastern mystic, as most of his music was inspired by what he claims was really his teacher, the natural wonder of music. Tipping his hat to the mystical power of music itself, a fitting end to this week's Beat Generation. I'm Shane Bryan. Join us on the next episode as we enter the 70s and the rise of progressive rock. Thanks for joining us on this week's look at the mystical influence in music as we finish with Van Morrison and Into the Mystic. 1970. Younger than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic oh, I can hear the sailors cry Smell the sea and feel the sky let your soul and spirit fly into the mystic And where that foghorn blows I will be coming home mm-hmm. And when the foghorn blows I want to hear it I don't have to fear it at all. I wanna rock your gypsy soul Just like way back in the days of old Yeah, magnificently we will fold Into the mystic You know I will be coming home Yeah, when that foghorn whistle blows I gotta hear it I don't have to fear it And I wanna rock your gypsy soul Just like way back in the days of old And together we will fold Into the best thing